From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Sazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Sazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, bring practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is that we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the 29th of June, 2021, and this is the third and last in a series of uh, talks on the 10 cardinal precepts in preparation for our Jukai ceremony, which is happening this Sunday afternoon. And uh, we still have four to cover. Um, I wanted to cover all four of them tonight, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm only going to get three through three, given how long the, the prep took and how many pages of notes I have. So um, we may have to um, leave the, the last one, the tenth, um, for another time. Uh, so we'll just, we'll just really launch right in. Um, and the f we've got, we've got, we'll, we'll aim to cover three, the th numbers three, five, and nine, 
Um, and the first of these is I resolve not to engage in harmful sexual relations, but to be faithful and responsible. Guess the probably the prevailing um, attitude um, in in this precept around um, sexuality in our times is probably li the liberal or humanist view that, and this can apply to other precepts as well, but I think it applies particularly here um, that the sense that that anything goes as long as it doesn't cause harm to others. Um, if, you know, as long as we're consenting adults, then we can we can uh, do whatever we want. The Buddhist standpoint is that we must also consider what it does to ourselves. We're also a sentient being, obviously, and so in deciding what is um, skillful and what is unskillful, our own well-being, both physical and emotional, comes into the picture. Or we could say to put it in in more in a more um, kind of dharmic way. What are the re the resonances in our own mind stream? Uh, or to use or to use a Catholic or a Christian word in our soul, in the sense of our our affective being, not not something that survives death, but that sense of of our emotional well-being. What, what, how will this action affect me? We've, we've looked before at how um, Buddhist ethics are not based on following rules. Um, but un, in discerning our, what our motivation is, because that will give us a clue to whether whether an action will have wholesome or constructive effects or versus unwholesome or destructive effects. So um, one, way of, one way of phrasing um, not engaging in harmful sexual relations might be um, to have relationships and activities that, that do not oppress or take advantage of anyone. To, to respect each other's bodies and not objectify them. To respect each other's minds and not objectify them. Sexual passion is, um, it's a little bit like a fire. It, it can warm and cheer us if, if it's in the right time or place, but it can also destroy. It can destroy families. It can joy, destroy relationships. It can destroy well-being.
I came across a passage in um, a book called Entering the Realm of Reality Towards Damic Societies, um, which is about um, how, to, how the Dharma, the teachings of the Dharma, could, um, if allowed, transform our uh, st structural um, sexism, racism, and so on. And um, there's a passage here. that, that um, talks a little bit, a bit about, uh, about sexism and patriarchy. And I think one of the, one of the sort of features of this precept around sexual relations, relations is that um, sexuality is complex and it brings in all other, many other strands of, um, of, of energies and, and uh, pressures and uh, social uh, norms are often in themselves quite um, unwholesome. So, um, can't remember the name of the author here of this chapter. It's based on the work of a monk, a Thai monk, 20th century Thai monk, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu. But the, the actual writer is an American monk, but whose name I, I can't quite find immediately. But here, anyway, here's what he says about sexism and patriarchy. At first glance, especially a male one, sexism might be, appear to be rooted in lust, while lust undoubtedly has a role in sexism and patriarchy, further reflection gives more weight to fear. Fear of women, fear of nature, fear of feelings, fear of the unknown, fear of the truth. Patriarchy is just the most basic of all the kinds of fears that lead to setting up hierarchical power structures in order to control what is feared. I believe that sexism is primarily a structure of fear. When we are afraid, we seek to control, especially in masculine thinking. Men, along with women who have internalized patriarchy, not only control women, we control the feminine in ourselves. We suppress it or exploit it. We also repress the things traditionally linked with the feminine, such as nature, intuition, feelings, and so on, the things men commonly fear. Mingled with the fear might be some hatred, hatred of our bodies, hatred of sexuality, hatred of things different from us. Finally, there is lust. Um, this word lust, it's, it's hard to hear. It's, it has so many connotations that seem so um, uh, medieval. Uh, but we could say here, just simply say sexual desire. Finally, there is sexual desire. The fact that many men are unable to control their sexual desires plays its role as well. And the inability of women to control theirs helps. So he's printing here kind of a, a kind of cocktail of different um, defilements that mix together to produce this uh, fairly poisonous uh, mixture.
later on he he imagines what it would be like in Adamic society, in other words, a society where um, the the precepts and the the insights of the Dharma were functioning. He says, um, healthy sexuality within healthy families will replace sexism, the sickly structure of fear, hatred, and lust. Thus, children will be raised and socialized with all, without all the fears, obsessions, suppressions, and prejudices of patriarchy and sexism. Here, a healthy family means that husband and wife have a mature love based in respect and shared responsibility, the proper container for sex. Each couple has only as many children as they can give adequate time, energy, and love to. People will do some spiritual work on themselves before undertaking this important enterprise of reproduction. Certain roles may tend to be the province of one sex or the other, but never exclusively or rigidly. Men will be able to appreciate and develop their feminine qualities. Women will be able to appreciate and nurture their own masculine qualities. A little bit later he says, concepts and labels like male and female will still exist, but we will have learned to stop clinging to them so selfishly and painfully. Sexuality will be an opportunity to practice with deeply felt human needs, instincts and emotions, rather than to exploit, whether sexually through lust or politically through power games. So he's, he presents the ideal. Sexuality will be an opportunity to practice with de deeply felt human needs, instincts, and emotions. So one of the kinds of awareness that we, we can bring to our own um, our sexual lives is just how how often they can be they can be uh, mixed up with um, other things besides just the sexual desire. We can come to relationships with all kinds of um, projections happening. Romantic love, I could say, is is notorious for its its. Um, uh, projecting onto on certain qualities onto the other person that they um, may not necessarily have. And as we ha and as we looked at with sexism, there can be also impure motivations, not just naivety or confusion or projection, but um, more um, darker motivations, desire for power over somebody, different types of uh, manipulation, domination, these kinds of things. We've been looking at um, the uh, order of interbeing precepts along with our own, um, these ones developed by um, Thich Nhat Hanh, and this is this is the one that that is parallel with our sexual relations um, precept. Do not mistreat your body. Learn to handle it with respect. Do not look on your body only as an instrument. 
preserve vital energies, sexual, breath, spirit, for realization of the way. And then, and then especially for non-monks and nuns, this precept continues, sexual expression should not place, take place without love and commitment. In sexual relationships, be aware of future suffering that may be caused. To preserve the happiness of others, respect the rights and commitments of others. Be fully aware of the responsibility of bringing new lives into the world. Meditate on the world into which you are bringing new beings. Here, when he says about um, preserving the rights and commitments of others, um, the, 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 the standard um, prohibition, I guess, for, for lay people uh, is adultery. And that's the um, respecting the commitments of others. Um, chastity would be the would be the, the parallel for for monks and nuns. But but beyond this, anything any kind of exploitative um, sexual activity would be um, breaking this precept. In Thich Nhat Hanh's version, he says, "Be aware of suffering that may be caused. To to realize how in uh, sexual expression we can become so vulnerable, we can we can open up and and merge with another person, and then that 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 merging can be ruptured." And this, Probably everybody in the room has has experienced this at some point, uh, probably quite early <laughs> as a teenager. Uh, what how painful these um, breakups can be, and so we can be vulnerable, or we can over time we can become become hard, hardened or even armoured against that vulnerability. What what really matters um, in is our intent, not so much the different forms that our sexual relations may take, uh, heterosexual, homosexual, but what is involved here? How much attachment is there? How much clinging? Two stories to um, to finish up with, which look both look at, at um, attachment. First story is about um, two pilgrims already over time I see in terms of getting all three in <laughs> equally but we'll finish off these um, many of you may have heard this story, it's an old one an old Zen story about two 
um, Zen practitioners who were um, on pilgrimage um, in China on foot, and they come to a river that's in flood. And uh, at, the, at the edge of, the, of this river, there's a young woman who's quite fearful. She's not sure if she'll, she's strong enough to be able to cross over this, um, this river. And so um, the older of the two um, monks uh, uh, picks her up and carries her across to the other side. And um, so they all cross safely over the river and go their separate ways. And for a long time, as, they, as they're walking along, there's a kind of loaded silence. And finally, the younger of the two monks, the one who observed this, um, can't keep silent anymore. And he says, how could you do that? How could you break your vows and carry her across the river? And the older monk says, I left the girl at the riverbank, but you've been carrying her all this way. So not to get caught up in the, in the, in the, in the rule, don't touch women, which was one of the, the some 200 rules that monks would follow. The other story um, is also a Zen story that um, is one of the, one of the um, early koans one works on. And, and it's... And as, as I'm reading this, we'll read this from Aiken Roshi's really wonderful book on the precepts called The Mind of Clover. And he points out that there are not a lot of teachings within the Zen tradition that do in fact deal with sexuality at all. Um, which I guess is, is not surprising considering that much of the literature comes from um, monks. Here's how this story goes. In ancient days, an old woman gave housing and food to a hermit over a period of 20 years. One day, she sent her 16-year-old niece to take food to the hermit, telling her to make advances to him to see what he would do. The girl laid her head on the hermit's lap and said, How is this? The hermit said, The withered tree is rooted in an ancient rock in bitter cold. During the winter months, there is no warmth, no life. The girl reported this to her aunt. The old woman said, The vulgarian, to think that I have made offerings to him for 20 years. She drove away the hermit and burnt down his cottage. And then Aitken comments on this. While we may question the use of the niece as bait to test the monk's realisation, it is clear by the final response of the aunt that fundamentally she too disapproves of the misuse of sex. The hermit was not responding to the human being who laid her head in his nap, in his lap. He was using her to express his own ascetic position. So the aunt calls him a vulgarian, a bore. Lewdness is boorish. Asceticism can be, and often is, boorish. Boorishness is thinking just of oneself. She drives him off and burns down his cottage. Fire is a dream symbol for sex. You don't belong here. Sex belongs here, or at least the acknowledgement of it. The acknowledgement of it. We'll come back to this as we 
as we look at um, these other two precepts. Another, just another quick comment by Aiken. With the help of our evolving Western cultural attitudes, we in the Zen movement can use sex in our practice rather than trying to exclude it. I don't mean that we should be experimenting with Tantra, but simply that we must acknowledge sexual energy as part of the Sangha treasure. Certainly we cannot justify rejecting sex and accepting the other human drives and emotions, such as anger, fear, hunger, and the need for sleep. All we have learned on our cushions proves that physical and mental conditions, the will and emotions, are human elements to be integrated into our daily life practice and our Zazen practice. For all its ecstatic nature, for all its power, sex is just another human drive. If we avoid it because it is more difficult to integrate than anger or fear, then we are simply saying that when the chips are down, we cannot follow our own practice. This is d dishonest and unhealthy. I think he has to say this because of the, the way in which sex has been seen as something dirty or um, somehow sh from the shadow side uh, in Western culture. And so we, we, in a sense, we have to sort of reclaim it and, and um, break down its extremes, the extremes that it has, has been uh, seen through in, in Western culture. All right. S next one. <laughs> uh, number five. I resolve not to take intoxicants nor to do so myself, but to keep the mind clear. The, in the original, it's phrased as, do not trade in alcohol. And uh, I mentioned, I think, in the first um, session that, that this, this particular precept um, is extracted from the, the right livelihood strand of the Eightfold Path. And um, in the uh, in ancient times, this was to trade in alcohol, in other words, to supply others with alcohol, was considered a major offence in the Vinaya, whereas just drinking it yourself was, was not a major offence. It was a lesser offence. And the reason given is that as disciples of the Buddha, we're... Um, here, the point, the point of being a disciple of the Buddha is to help sentient beings, including ourselves, achieve clarity and wisdom. And so to, to ply someone with, with intoxicants is, is to complete cross-purposes to um, what we're here for as practitioners. And um, alcohol is given as the as the intoxicant, but we can we can include here other addictive and mind altering substances, whether it's tobacco or opiates or uh, marijuana, even depending on how it's used. Um, or we can extend it beyond chemicals to um, other things which. Um, 
a mind and body altering. Um, pornography would include here. There's, there's research now about the effect of pornography on the brain and um, how uh, users of it get become desensitized and need more and more extreme forms of of uh, pornography to get the same response. The it's, um, I couldn't find the reference whether I've lent the book to somebody, but um, some of you may have the book, The Brain That Changes, which goes into it, um, touches on it. Um, other other items we could include here um, video games addiction to video games shopping internet surfing facebook and again it's not black and white it's how we do these things it may be quite harmless or it may be um, not so harmless reading novels could be could be used in a in an unhealthy unwholesome kind of way um, listening to to podcasts even um, somebody coined the term Dharma entertainment where where one just one can listen to uh, even spiritual teachings but not in a way that is is um, serious rather just enjoying having them having that that energy the question is what are we doing with it are we using these things to numb ourselves are we sort of disengaging through these different types of things. The forms of intoxication that involve actual chemical alterations to the brain are the more problematic ones, and this would include, include gambling and, and probably excessive um, video games as well. Uh, we know about the, the uh, dopamine hits that we get from from seeing ourselves liked in Facebook or winning a game or um, winning money, winning winning at cards, these things can be um, very hard to free ourselves from. But when we do free ourselves from, perhaps I should say, if we do free ourselves then um, often that freeing will, will come with much insight. It will, that will be uh, the way out of the addiction. Um, think um, of the AA organization, which um, helps people to get, get sober, or there's the other ones for um, gambling and drug addiction as well. And in, in, this, in these organizations, one of the key factors is recognizing that one's addiction is a spiritual problem and also that one has a sponsor 
what we call in Buddhism a Kalyanamitra, a spiritual friend. And this seems to be one of the aspects of of um, getting beyond addictions is this this spiritual friendship. From um, an absolute point of view, we can say um, that there's no such thing as intoxicants. Here's what um, Yasutani Roshi says in his commentary on the, um, this precept. The one mind precept states, self-nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the intrinsically pure Dharma, not allowing the mind to become dark through ignorance is called the precept of refraining from taking intoxicants. The whole universe is nothing other than inconceivably wondrous self-nature, the intrinsically pure Dharma. There is not even one drop of liquor to incite the drunkenness of ignorance. Yet ordinary individuals, dreaming, concoct the liquor of dualism, drink it themselves, cause others to drink it, and carry on tumultuously. The minds of all ordinary individuals are like this. If they could just awaken from the hallucination of self and other dualism, their ignorance would, sell, would cease. Everything is Buddha nature. Even the true nature of ignorance is just Buddha nature. The root of ignorance is our mis misconception of the self. We see through eyes blinded by selfishness. With the realization of no self, everything is seen as original Buddha nature. Ordinary individuals handle Buddha nature and experience great peace and happiness. But these are the dead words of interpretation. Demonstrate the living thing. He ends with this admonition to us to realize this for ourselves. But it's so important to see that that the core of the of the impulse to intoxication is actually uh, our dukkha, and and we try to escape from this dukkha, from our painful feelings and our thoughts, from our awkwardness, from our sense of alienation, our separateness, and and we do, at least in the early stages of of alcohol consumption. Um, feel as a kind of a oneness and a unity that is is very very um, seductive. Two two very fine examples of this in lit in recent art come to mind. One is a Danish film. Um, it just popped into my head as I was talking, and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, somebody may have seen it and know, uh, but it's about three teachers who start drinking a little bit in their classes in high school, and they become r brilliant teachers. But then, <laughs> and you can imagine there's a kind of slippery down, downwards um, spiral from there, but done in a very non-judgmental way, in a very understanding way of the nature of, of, of addiction and of, of um, intoxication. And the other one, also from Scandinavia, is 
um, the account of Karlov and Nausgaard and his massive work, um, Mein Kampf, um, about his extreme drunkenness as a young man and, and what was behind it, his, his longing, his spiritual longing. Sometimes people will ask when they hear of this precept and get concerned, changing the subject now. And they'll ask, can I have a glass of wine with dinner? And I'd say the, the answer to that is most people can, and it's not a problem. But if you're an alcoholic, it may, it may already be too much. And lastly, um, so we'll look at anger, this precept on anger. Hopefully we'll keep it short enough that we'll have a bit of time to talk about it because this is one which that so many of us um, struggle with. And um, so I invite people to get into small groups and talk about this at the end. Um, anger, anger's... Um, one aspect of of aversion, and aversion, or or sometimes termed hatred, is one of the three poisons. So considered to be one of the three basic um, defilements or um, aspects of our, our not seeing things clearly. So we have greed, the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed and hatred, the two sides of craving, um, wanting things and wanting to get rid of things, and delusion, um, which is kind of active ignorance, um, mistaken ideas about things. So if we if we look at aversion, it's there are multiple flavors, um, from irritation and annoyance to, to anger and resentment, um, malice, vindictiveness, hatred, wrath, rage, jealousy. So that's not an exhaustive list. We could go on and on. There are so many different ways of describing this range of emotions. And we could say in the, in the big picture of aversion, it includes fear and worry as well. And we were talking a little bit about fear uh, before in relation to sexism. And um, just take a little bit from the Theravadan text. This is by a um, venerable Damananda. And it's called How to Live Without Fear and Worry. And it, it has a whole chapter on um, working with anger. And just a, just a little bit of this. Because we all have to work with anger. All human beings are subject to anger in one form or another in their daily lives. It's a negative emotion which is dormant within us, 
are waiting to flare up and take control over our lives when the occasion arises. Anger can be likened to a flash of light which blinds us temporarily and causes us to act unreasonably. Uncontrolled anger can cause a great deal of harm, both physically and emotionally. Like any other human emotion, anger can be brought under control. Certain creatures by nature are unable to see during daytime, while some others are blind at night. A human being, driven to great heights of hatred and bitterness, is blind to anything in the true sense, either by day or by, di by night. There is a saying, an angry person opens her mouth and closes her eyes. Just as the money stored in a bank will reap a dividend, so will the anger stored in the mind reap the returns of bitterness. Whom or what do we fight when we are angry? We fight with ourselves and become, as it were, our worst enemy. We must try to eradicate totally this dangerous enemy latent in your mi our minds with a proper understanding of the situation. Um, that's not something we usually hear in the in the in the our tradition to eradicate anger totally, but that's the aspiration in in the Theravadan tradition. Anger grows stronger when fueled by emotion, especially when craving is behind that emotion. At the moment of intense anger, a person ceases to be human. And all of all of the pronouns in this are male, but I'm going to try and just um, change them as I go along. So, at the moment of intense anger, a person ceases to be human. They become a dangerous animal capable of destroying not only others, but also themselves. Anger can cost them their reputation, job, friends, loved ones, peace of mind, health, and even their very own self. The Buddha spoke about the wretchedness of anger and said that when a person is angry, seven things befall her that would help the cause of her enemies and make them rejoice. What are the seven? And he lists them. Um, he will be angry, he will be ugly despite being well groomed and well dressed. He will lie in pain even if he sleeps on a soft and comfortable couch. He will do things which rise to give rise to his harm and suffering by mistaking bad for good and good for bad, by being reckless and not listening to reason. He will lose his hard-earned wealth and even run into trouble with the law. He will lose his reputation and fame which have been acquired by diligence. His friends, relatives and kin will avoid him and stay away from him. After death, he will be reborn in an unfavorable state of existence, since a person who is controlled by anger performs unwholesome actions through body, speech, and mind, which bring unfavorable results. And that's from the Anguttara Nikaya. And the, the author of this says, These above misfortunes are those which one's enemy would like to wish for one, but these are the very misfortunes that befall a person 
who is overcome by anger. Then he he goes into um, some simple um, ways of of uh, working with our anger. The, the theme that runs through these is awareness. Awareness, that we, if we can be aware that we're angry, then we're no longer um, the, the uh, victim of our anger. He suggests we repeat um, these phrases frequently throughout the day. I can control my anger. I can subdue irritability. I will keep cool and be unruffled. I will be unmoved by anger as a rock. I am courageous and full of hope. One of the other um, things suggested by the Buddha is to recall some of the good qualities of the hated person. When you disregard his bad characteristics as a human weakness and start thinking of his qualities and the good things he has performed, then the anger may soften and give way to loving kindness. This one, I think, is a real test of our willingness to let go of our anger. It can be very hard to even allow our minds sometimes to... um, acknowledge that another person has that one is really angry with, to acknowledge that that person has good qualities, to recognize those good qualities. Our anger does naturally soften when we do this, but we can be very, very resistant to it. Another way of of, um, defanging, so to speak, our anger is to remember the ownership of karma. All beings are the owners and heirs of their respective karma, and they will inherit the fruits of their good or bad actions. By understanding this law, you will be less inclined to be angry with another. Instead of being angry, you develop compassion for the other person who will have to face the results of his bad actions. And another antidote is cultivating thoughts of loving kindness to all beings. This is a very, very powerful practice which brings um, great blessings and also powerful concentration. It's what considered to be one of the, the divine abodes, Brahma Viharas. And by not letting your mind be polluted by evil thoughts towards the person who has wronged or hurt you, the anger you harbour in your mind does not just you more damage than to the other person. Therefore, cultivate a life of joy and love, even while living among the hateful. And um, elsewhere, he also talks about the importance of if you feel angry about some issue, 
that you actually uh, allow yourself to calm down before you try and think of the response to that issue. That if you do it while you're, you're um, caught up in, in strong anger, then your response will not be entirely um, lucid or um, rational. Observe and analyze. When we're angry, we must be aware of our own anger, and that's everything. Um, seeing that our anger comes out of mistaken view. I'll finish up here with, um, again, with Yasutani Roshi. The one mind precepts state, self-nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the Dharma of no self, not postulating a self is called the precept of refraining from anger. The whole universe is just wondrous self-nature. The turmoil of I versus you, this versus yet that, is merely the hallucination of the unenlightened. There is no great self which originally created the universe, nor is there a small self which somehow inhabits our five or six foot bodies. It is all dharmas which arise according to the law of cause and effect. As there is no self, there is no other standing against a self. The universe is all me. Then there's no one to get mad at, is there? Anger arises because we mistakenly postulate a small self which we consider to be real. And I think that's a good place to um, stop and, and just give the last word to Master Joshua, if I can find it. Master Joshua was asked, how do we get rid of our passions? He replied, why should we get rid of them? So on that note, if we can just finish up with a few minutes discussing one of these, and I, I'm guessing that probably the most um, uh, topical one for people will be anger. <laughs> so if we just get into into pairs, and um, or maybe in one case a trio, and uh, talk about anger in terms of how you work with it and what you found to be helpful. And then um, after people have talked for a while, we'll just, we'll just finish up with a, um, checking in to see if there's pe anything people want to share with the bigger group in a few minutes.